One of the most resilient Hollywood action movie tropes is that when you've got a tough job, a dirty job, you call in a loose cannon. He may not play by the rules, but he gets results. Hell, I think of myself as the loose cannon of this podcast, with Ben as the frustrated police chief and Adam as the hapless rookie detective. You want to see my results? Here they are, punk. The trope isn't reserved for cop movies, and it's not a recent invention. It's born out of the American identity of the rugged individualist, and some of our best-known literary heroes are cut from this cloth, from Captain Ahab to Nancy Drew. In the case of war movies, there's almost always at least one protagonist who dances to the beat of his own drummer. Sometimes he's a disruption. Occasionally he gets his comeuppance, but more often than not, his unorthodox practices save the day. You're all clear, kid. Now let's blow this thing and go home. Wahoo! Even so, it's not every day we meet a character like Lee Marvin's Major Reisman. Hard-bitten, battle-tested, all business but with a swagger like a Bengal tiger, he's despised by his former commanders for his insolence and offered a suicide mission no one else would take. Stage an assault on a French chateau full of Wehrmacht officers on the eve of D-Day using a team of commandos made up of condemned men who have no special training and no reason to cooperate. Reisman recruits a team of 12 reprobates sentenced to death or life in prison and promises them a full pardon if they survive. Here we have the loose cannon multiplier, where the loose cannon who gets results puts the fate of his mission in the hands of even looser cannons. It's loose cannons all the way down. Fortunately for Reisman, at least half of his team are made up of big Hollywood stars, so at some point he can count on everyone having a big scene showing off what a nutjob they are. The groundwork for this mission is impeccable. The film's first half is a boot camp story, one of the great boot camp stories of all of war cinema. Following Charles Bronson, Jim Brown, John Cassavetes, Telly Savalas, Guitari Trini Lopez, and Donald Sutherland, among others, as they are molded from a rabble of psychos into a crack commando squad. The Major breaks them down to build them up. He provides liquor and prostitutes as a reward, and despite repeated conflicts with his nemesis, the straight-laced Colonel Breed, the team coalesces and proves themselves by winning the war game exercises through deceit and cunning. With that set piece behind them, the unit parachutes into France, executing their careful plan, massacring high-ranking Germans while getting picked off one by one by the overwhelming opposition, climaxing in a last-stand scene of Nazi immolation that would play really well on Twitter if it happened today. Only Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, and Richard Jekyll escape with their lives, but the unit's valiance leads to official clemency for their criminal pasts. In order to inspect this film, we had to learn to walk slow, act dumb, and look stupid. Today on Friendly Fire, The Dirty Dozen. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that is not putting its weight on the load-bearing parts of the roof. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm uh, I'm straddled between two joists, and I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> <laughs> I have reservations about killing hundreds of people with gasoline. I'm John Roderick. Oh man, this movie is long. It's very long. We're recording on Friday. We normally record on Tuesday. That's how long it is. <laughs> yeah, it took us all week to watch the movie. <laughs> we are, this is going to be the longest friendly fire, too, because we have to cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Do you put together 
a crew of criminals because you know they'll probably be pretty okay with burning a room full of people with gasoline. Like, that's the reason that they recruit from the prison, right? Because a regular army wouldn't do this. That wasn't the original mission, to kill them with gasoline. That was like, what do we do now? That was an improvised solution to the problem. Yeah. What rhymes with gasoline? Like, that was the number of the thing that they counted off. Like, (laughs) number 16, kill him with gasoline. (laughs) Number 17, get out the Vaseline. (laughs) You know, I think that that kind of war crime often does happen, but it's only after a bunch of troops have been through... uh, a lot of battles and they've seen all their friends get killed and they just lose their they lose their minds i mean if you think about the justifications that the soldiers made for the the massacre at my lay in vietnam it was it was entirely that they'd seen so many of their friends get killed and they'd never had a chance to get payback against this invisible enemy and so they they felt justified in in committing atrocities but these guys hmm. These guys were just mad about not having hot food. <laughs> so yeah, it's. Uh, I think you're. I think you're right, Adam. They already. I mean, they've demonstrated that they're sociopaths. But even you know, Jefferson looked at him like seriously. We're really going to burn these guys. I mean, he had he had his moment. Although he was the he, in some ways the moral center of the film. I like that for a group of of known sociopaths, they're all still totally freaked out by what a creep Telly Savalas is. <laughs> I mean, they're all like, I may be a sociopath, but at least I'm not a racist. <laughs> a racist religious fanatic and and total like like woman hater like you yeah. never see on film. That An the avowed only, misogynist. Yeah, the only people that you ever see in a movie that are that crazy are serial killers. I mean, you never see yeah. a character like that. Yeah, this is one of the good guys in this movie. <laughs> and uh, and he's the most religious of the crew, right? That seems like a pretty edgy character decision to make. There's a lot of very edgy stuff for 19, what, 68? Yeah, 67. I mean, Lee Marvin was was that kind of person in in real life and I mean, he was he was uh he was like a Steve McQueen character, not a not a conventional play it safe actor. And uh yeah, this was, I mean, you know, compare this to Force 10 from Navarone. Steve McQueen would seduce your wife away from you, but Lee Marvin would, like, seduce your wife and your mom. <laughs> <laughs> like, I do not watch enough Lee Marvin films. I thought he was totally enjoyable in this. Isn't he incredible? He really is, and he gives every line reading his own brand. We see so many actors in movies of this time be caricatures of themselves and i'm not sure that i've seen enough lee marvin films to know whether or not he's just being lee marvin but god whatever his brand is i'm i'm buying i i really love it (laughs) no flat filtered out flavor and friendly here's the proof he's like the epitome of the officer like i'm looking at his credits on imdb and almost like 20 percent of the movies he's done his character name is like lieutenant something or sergeant something you talk about uh Men for their time. I mean, if you read anything about Lee Marvin, he's a he's a guy who could probably never exist outside of his specific time period. And I would encourage anyone to read anything about him. He's a fascinating guy, but yeah. also kind of a monster. He is, you know, he is about my dad's age, a couple of years younger. He was 44 when this movie was made. He fought in World War II. 
and yeah, he's just the greatest generation. Uh, this is them at their middle-aged prime, you know? Like, yeah, I think that Lee Marvin is how my dad imagined himself as he, <laughs> as he got up to work and took the ferry to his law office, walking around with his hat tilted so far forward over his eyebrows. I mean, honestly, I mean, I wear my hat that way, influenced by Lee Marvin. I didn't realize that you had been Marvining all this oh, time. Oh, yeah, because well, I watched these movies with my dad, and, you know, this was like, whew. Is that why you also punched all those guys in the face for so many years? <laughs> That's why <laughs> when I first met you, I was like, try and kill me with a knife, Adam. Go ahead. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that. Tough guy? Yeah, right. And then you turned my arm behind my back. It really hurt. <laughs> it happened. Every single guy that came to me and said, can I make a documentary about your band? I was like, try and kill me with a knife first. Was I also the best looking guy in the crew? Because uh, the guy he does that to in this film is, holy shit, like he could be Superman. Why isn't he Superman? Clint Walker, Samson Posey. Samson Posey is like a giant of the crew, of the 12 people. He's an oak. They do a lot of fun framing where he'll like walk into a frame and it's two guys and his bicep and his bicep (laughs) is as big as the two people standing next to it. It's funny to judge them on their relative masculinity because like just looking at at who's in this film, like Lee Marvin in the 60s is as man as it gets, but then impossibly they stick the other most man as it gets person in the in the cast and Charles Bronson. And then they sort of backfill with like, how do you backfill this film with Jim Brown and Telly Savalas? And George Kennedy, this cast is stacked. John Cassavetes. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, it's so stacked. And, you know, all these actors would have, well, half of them are already major players. And then there's yeah. this cast of red shirts that they do less character development about because, you know, you can just tell, like, one of them is going to break his neck in the jump. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, which guy was the one that broke his neck in the jump? Who maybe strangely redshirted in this film is is donald sutherland who doesn't even get major credit even though later on he'd go on to be a major star very youthful donald sutherland this was really really early in his uh in his career this was kind of the you know it put him a little bit on the map on the other end of the spectrum is robert ryan who who sort of plays a bit part here in playing the colonel but of all the people in the cast is probably the one with the longest film resume at this point. Like he's old Hollywood playing in the sixties. He was a, a really fun villain. I mean, this, this movie is as much about like disrespect for authority as it is about killing Nazis and the conflicts that they have within the army are really fun and, uh, and really like take up a good portion of the, of the proceedings. You love Lee Marvin's character right away, right? I think you have to. He's he's watching this hanging of a prisoner, and he's hating it. He hates it so much, he leaves as the body is twitching at the end of the rope. Like, he, he does his diligence in as a witness before storming out of it. He's totally, like, insolent to his superior officers, but not, but not so insubordinate that they would kick him out. His, his attitude throughout is just riding that line. He can't be so much of an asshole to turn off the viewer and, and make you hate him as, as a dangerous person in the army because he's never dangerous. And that is a really interesting magic trick that they do to his character. 
Yeah, he's he's really rough on on the guys at like and especially to their faces, but in the in uh you know, behind the scenes he's always arranging for them yeah. in endearing ways like getting the guy his guitar strings and and such. I think you know, I think that his character is one we see throughout war movies that came after this. The things about this film and about that portrayal that seem cliché, it's only because we see them over and over again in films that follow and done less well. But that kind of thing that you're talking about, Adam, I think is a product of the fact that a lot of these actors were, or a lot of the people involved in this film were World War II veterans. Right. So they know how it was done. They know where the lines were. They know how people talk to each other. We don't have so much of that Saving Private Ryan, um, you know, where the commander is like, got a jittery hand, but he's a, you know, he's a soft-hearted school teacher at heart. You know, that 1990s. Yeah, the hard ass with the heart of gold. Yeah, right. And in this movie, it's like, no, that's not how people were. And he never, he never breaks character. Even when he's soft to the men, he does it in a hard way, but he's not, he's not brutal. It's such an interesting examination of World War II masculinity through the lens of 1968 social change. And of course, the character of Jefferson has a real, a very 60s film portrayal of, a, of an empowered black guy that you would not see in a 1944 scenario exactly. You know, his whole opening scene in the prison where he's like, it's not my war, whitey. Yeah. It's like really out of shaft. I read a book a few years ago called Now the Hell Will Start. It's about a lot of things, but uh, one of the subjects it touches on is the fact that the army was segregated in World War II, like segregated down to the blood supply. Like you wouldn't save somebody's life with blood from a black soldier because it was like illegal. And uh, the fact that this movie and Force 10 from Navarone found ways to like work a black character into the mix is really interesting because it's kind of it's like that revisionism getting started like in the 60s where i think a lot of people now are surprised to learn that the army was so segregated then his backstory was the only one that was shared to any specific degree when when reisman talks to jefferson in a cell he talks about killing and self-defense because they tried to castrate him yeah that is, that is pretty specific fear of a black man right yeah, there. Let that just wow, 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 wow yeah. resonate in your in your <laughs> mind. And it's such a short moment. And Lee Marmon is just like, huh, yeah, well, I would have done what you did. But, you know, anyway, Judge didn't see it that way. So, All right, Franco, you're next. The movie is so, it's so tough. There are so many scenes yeah. where it's just like, oh, uh, fuck, that was a punch in the stomach. But they just keep going. There's... You know, they don't yeah. sit and wallow in it. Even to use that word on film in 1967 made me made me stiffen up and, and take notice. That seemed very strong for its time. And I think it should be noted, too, uh, Jim Brown was fresh off the football field, was thinking about whether or not to become a full-time actor or whether to retire. The owner of the Cleveland Browns actually gave him an ultimatum and was like, it's either Hollywood or football. Make your choice. And Jim Brown chose Hollywood, and I think he fits in perfectly in this cast of really great actors. Yeah. He did an incredible job. If you consider, like, the football players who have become actors and their early roles, a lot of them are pretty stiff in their early roles. 
but he just inhabits this role real strong. It's a cast that is so big, there's almost not enough time for everybody. And yeah. that's saying a lot because it's a two and a half hour movie. <laughs> but there's so much story to pack into that two and a half hours. Like it, it fits sort of neatly into a three act structure that first act being the backstory of all these guys, the second act being, you know, how do you get this group of 12 to straighten up and learn? learn war fighting and then the third act being like the mission the war game and the mission and its conclusion like the psychology of team building is right. is the the main struggle for the second act well and i think you see that in a lot of films but so often the transition from a motley ragtag nobody you know band of of uh, misfits to a, a crack outfit and in this movie you really feel every step of the way how they are building themselves into a, a team and it's it's really believable by the time they jump out of that airplane you absolutely have gone every uh, you know the whole distance with them and you and you believe them as a squad a modern caper film with a full cast like this would feel obligated to give everyone their moment yeah you know their moment to shine or their specific moment to be like oh i remember that guy as one of the like the oceans films do this a lot everyone is there for a specific purpose and everyone gets their two minutes to demonstrate this film doesn't do that like there are members of the 12 that get relatively little to do I thought a lot about Suicide Squad and how they decided to open the movie for every single character. Like, every single character got their beginning of the film. Right. By the time they were done introducing everybody, it was like an hour in, and you're just totally exhausted by it. (laughs) The closest they get to that in this film is the prison scene in the beginning when Reisman just sort of meets everyone. Yeah. How punk rock are those those jackets with the big giant P on the back? (laughs) Pretty great. It's P for punk. Yeah. <laughs> I think that thing that you're talking about makes it's what makes the raid so satisfying because you don't everybody had a job but when it starts and it goes sideways you don't have that thing where the movie's like well the explosives guy has got to do his explosives thing yeah. and the, and the acrobat guy's got to do his acrobat thing it's just like oh shit everybody's just scrambling and that's really satisfying too. What? When they do the the rhyme scheme to to sort of plan out that mission, a lesser movie too would have closely attached those moments to characters, but it's totally inscrutable when they're going around the Thanksgiving table talking about the the beats of the mission. And I think that really serves the story well. It makes it far more surprising when the shit goes down. You notice that the Thanksgiving table was absolutely the Last Supper, right? Right. It's, it's yeah. a total Last Supper set. Hard to miss. Beautiful, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, when Donald Sutherland uh, got to the set of MASH for that scene, he must have been like, oh, I've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those films with a super long cold open, and I loved it. Like, I feel like there's a good half an hour of exposition before we see title sequence. Did you guys dig that? A lot. I really dug it because I like I had no concept of there being a possibility of a title sequence upcoming at that point. Yeah. You know? I just thought we were in the movie. And I think that there's so much packed into the prologue, like getting to meet Ernest Borgnine and, and George Kennedy's characters and getting a sense of what animates Major Reisman. Like, 
you almost get the sense that they're trying to get rid of him too. Like he is, he's a major who has distinguished himself and is known to be good at combat, but he's also a total pain in the ass to have under your command. So like, let's send him on this terrible mission. And there is no begging to be given a different job on his part. There's no, um, you know, fighting for a different way of doing it. I like that Reisman had allies in the upper brass in George Kennedy, especially. Like, I saw Ernest Borgnine on the cast list, and I was like, well, that's the guy who's going to be making the funny faces and, <laughs> and being the clown of the film. But it's George Kennedy. And yeah. he does so much so wordlessly to be Marvin's ally in the room and to just sort of subtly inject you know, a reason that Reisman should still be in the army, a reason that the mission can still go on, even though uh, there was an incident with the colonel. He's not so transparently an ally that that he could be outed and considered in the same crew as Reisman, but man, give it up for George Kennedy. He's great. Yeah, he was really terrific. When George Kennedy died, I made a flip comment on Twitter about, like, the thing that they should show in the in-memoriam reel is is when he pulls that pull-start gas-powered dildo machine out from behind the counter in, uh, in the Naked Gun movie. <laughs> and a friend of mine, who I'm not going to name, uh, sent me a text, and she was like, you know, my mom dated George Kennedy before she met my father, and he was a fucking outstanding man and a great lover. And (laughs) nothing is, is less surprising to me than to know that about George Kennedy. Like, wow, what a guy. Hell yeah. (laughs) To appreciate a guy so much as, as your dad's previous, I think is, is great. That's emblematic (laughs) of a great man. (laughs) Do you guys want to hear a great moment in pedantry? Sure. Uh Uh-huh. In the beginning of the movie, set in 1944, Major Reisman wears infantry badge insignia, an airborne badge, a silver star, a bronze star, and a purple heart, and was told by the general that he had done well in Italy, meaning in combat. Considering his infantry specialty, his combat decorations, and his combat experience in the Italian campaign, Reisman also should have been wearing a combat infantryman badge created in November 1943. That's a great file on Reisman, but uh, I mean, I guess he's he's not half Native American, half German, so. It's a hell of a combination. You notice that Borgnine does that same tra- uh, style of, right, like, I'm going right, to read right. your file to you, except yeah. he, he doesn't do it so, so like, awful, awfully, as it happens in Rambo. He just kind of goes like, oh, yeah, you did all this stuff, and you kind of fucked up every time. Again, it's almost a believable reading of the file. It's not pedantic. It's just like, all right. Yeah. Let me tell you, and by you, I mean not you, but the audience, what your qualifications are. He's not totally licking his popsicle either. Like, he's saying, (laughs) yeah, look at how great you are, but also you're a real son of a bitch, like, for all these reasons, too. And I think that helps the tone of the scene. There are a couple of really small things that establish lee marvin right away and one of them is right at the beginning when this when they're hanging that soldier and he drops and the the priest has been like (laughs) through the whole scene and the soldier dies and lee marvin looks over just out of the corner of his eye looks at the priest looks down at the bible that he's reading from with this just 
it's just like half a second looks down at the Bible and communicates like such sort of derision and then turns and walks out of the room and you're just like, whoa, well, that's so character establishing because he's so high and tight. You know, he looks clean. He yeah. looks like he's a real soldier, but he just looks at the Bible and all, all of a sudden it's all you need to know about the guy for and it's and it was uh, it was two seconds at the start of the movie. But he can also like go toe to toe theologically with Maggot. Right. So, like he knows his Bible. He is just uh, not a big fan. <laughs> that idea that Lee Marvin contains like, like on the one side, if you look at him, he is he is off the production line, military looking, but yeah. he also has resting, don't give a fuck face. Yeah. The other moment that I felt like. You wouldn't see now, uh, when he and the captain are talking about the psychological profiles of the dudes, and Lee Marvin pours out some Johnny Walker for the two of them, and the captain goes over to his bag and pulls out a full bottle of Johnny Walker, and there's no... Ben, did you see that was blue? Uh, is that the good stuff? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know my scotch. It's wildly expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um and, and neither one of them makes any kind of like hoo 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 kind of look on their face, which I think you would see in a, in a contemporary movie. That, that would be played as, right. as a gag or as a moment of like, <laughs> or whatever. There was no reference to it. It was just like a, it was just in the scene. He pours out two pretty thick shots and then it's very intentional but he reaches over to the canteen. I mean, intentional in the film. He reaches to the canteen and he fills fills up the glasses with water. It's a scotch and water. As my godmother would call it, a scotch and water. <laughs> <laughs> and a scotch and water was a put hair on your chest style drink. Yeah. Of men of that era. Uh, if that scene happened in a contemporary movie, they would both do those shots neat. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it would be meant to show us that they were tough guys. But in this scene, it's like this is they're just having a drink. It's scotch and water. It's not some uh, it's not competitive. They're like, listen, our masculinity is toxic, but not that toxic. <laughs> You're going to want to hydrate for our level of masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Yuck. So this movie has like big set pieces. It's got the prison set piece. It's got the training set piece. It's got the war game set piece and the German chateau raid set piece they're all like really different and like i kept i kept like looking at the at the runtime and going like man like <laughs> there is a lot of movie before we get to the the thing that this is nominally about it's structured a lot like jaws where like you don't get to see the shark till way toward the end of the film and they distribute the budget fairly evenly throughout the film i thought like these set pieces are big and they're big throughout right like that war game thing is you never see it coming for the first half of the film, but then it winds up being right. a major part of the second half of the film. I love the war game. I love everything about it. I love especially Ernest Borgnine's General Warden character as he sort of puts together what's happening right in front of him. As the spy game basically is visited on his doorstep, he gets to see it three feet away. It's awesome. And he's just eating it up. <laughs> and yeah. he doesn't give it away either, which I thought, you know, if, if Borgnine was being set up as a bad guy, which it felt like he was in the first act, that was the tension in this scene for me was like, this guy is not on Reisman's side. He's going to out them for doing something dumb. And then 
the game's going to be over, but that he goes along with them went a long way in, in making me like his character. The deal that is set up that um, Colonel Breed is is really upset about what Lee Marvin's character is up to. And so Lee Marvin suggests that he can... He can uh, prove his men's worth by by winning the war game by like capturing Breed's command center in the war game. And General Warden could have a dog in the fight. He is definitely more leaning toward Breed's side when when they have their initial disagreement, but is willing to let it play out naturally and doesn't doesn't tip off Breed what's going on. I think that's what's so great about the casting of Ernest Borgnine because everybody that would have been watching this film at the time knew that when they saw him on the cast they probably had the same feeling adam did like he's going to be an enlisted man he's going to be the tough cook or the master sergeant he's going to be the rickles of the film that's what i thought right and to have him as the ranking general and have him start off being a hard ass it's kind of playing against type because he's you know he's not one of these there are a lot of very handsome guys in this film playing very uh, buttoned up roles and he's such a rough looking man right Um, but then that earthiness shines through later on he kind of uh, capitulates to the idea that the dirty dozen are you know are a brilliant plan (laughs) that I'd like to see so would I not a lot of great teeth in this movie. <laughs> TBH. <laughs> There's a scene where Lee Marvin smiles at some big broad smile yeah. and his teeth are the color of like vintage <laughs> ivory. <laughs> <laughs> All the cigarettes and coffee and liquor. Yeah. When uh, when my grandfather passed away and we went to Manhattan to clean out his brownstone, they uh taking pictures off the wall and his in his home office, it was that color, you know, like the, like you reveal the, the white wall underneath and, and there's just layers of nicotine <laughs> that have glommed onto the walls. They're like sticky from it, you know? It's one of the difficulties in collecting vintage war uh, uniforms. Not that I would know, <laughs> uh, but you often, you know, put your nose against them and it's just like, oh boy, you'll never, <laughs> that's not going to come out. You know? <laughs> And remember, with Pell-Mell, you can light either end. When we watched M.A.S.H., it shocked us for the fact that it played a lot of just, like, suggested sexual violence. Uh, It played it for laughs. Right. And it was, you know, kind of like, to our modern eye, just, like, grotesque. Um, This movie, right out of the gate, puts this Telly Savalas character into a posture of, like, someone who is talking uh sincerely about violence against women at the level of being a serial killer but then we watch his character be accepted into the cast of the of the group and he's also although always kind of thought of as a psycho he's definitely one of the the film treats him as an equal and it's it's hard to watch because it suggests that that sort of violence is well, this you know more or less equal to the weird violence that the other dudes committed the rejection of him socially i think really helps in a way that that with mash it never happened in that film yeah if you were yeah. to express feelings the way that that maggot does in this film 
to me, I never like I never felt Maggot instrumentality in the mission. He didn't really have a specialty that I could latch onto as well. They need that guy to blow up the bridge, so they're just gonna have to deal with the the drawback of him being a weirdo. Like, well, also his insanity is like the reason that the mission goes sideways toward the yeah. end. But they totally like accommodate it. Like they're like, okay, we're gonna like let some. You know, bring some girls in from town and and let them uh, party with the the fellas before <laughs> you know before they uh, go on their mission. But let's just like make sure Maggot has something else to <laughs> occupy himself with during that part, so that he doesn't murder the women. <laughs> Maggot's jacking it in the guard tower <laughs> where he can't hurt anyone. The way they foreshadow it, I mean, there are there are a couple of psychos. Uh, in the in the cast and it isn't clear you know that somebody that initially is a total outcast and throughout the movie you know that franco is going to be redeemed in the end and there it's such a trope in films like this um and franco i mean it's just like talk about a movie where everybody dies in the end (laughs) you just like come on let somebody let somebody like come out of this alive one of these guys that we now love and we yeah. lose franco it's such an unceremonious kind of like oh isn't that ironic like don't ever say we made it dudes don't ever yeah. say that but but it's but it's set up in the movie that telly savalas's character could be the one who's redeemed right you know like it's never clear whether his psycho outcast status is going to be redeemed. And then it's really surprising when his psycho status is the thing that throws the whole, the whole mission sideways. I mean, it is, it's like, it's shocking and you go, fuck, Uh, (laughs) like this is not how this is supposed to go. Everybody's supposed to get their little scene and then they all make it out. Right. What what are you doing to us? 1968. (laughs) Yeah. The sequel is going to (laughs) suck. The dirty one? <laughs> Who cares? We go on that mission, we all get killed. That's what they want. I think the the final set piece, the raid on the German. I mean, I mean, I guess it's it's a French chateau with a bunch of German officers in it. A great set piece, like yeah, maybe one of the greatest ever. It is so complex, and it really plays the tension amazingly. And, you know, you can see when it's about to go sideways and you can, it it does a great job of telegraphing, like, how it might go sideways. And then it's this totally complicated battle scene with, you know, the camera is spinning 360 degrees. You see, you see stuff from every angle, but you're never confused about it. And I think it's because they show that model of the space before we go there you know like where the bridge is and where the where the moat is and and like where the the german trucks are coming from and you know what they can see from the roof and what they can see from the driveway and stuff it's a really masterful piece of action directing it's 30 minutes of really high stress too because we've sent our favorite characters inside dressed in nazi drag they're they're being <laughs> undermined by by the maggot character it's so scary and there are so many close calls too between the rope 
not being seen outside to Donald Sutherland's character out by the car smoking cigarettes who clearly doesn't know how to speak German. Like, oh God, this guy's, this guy's wanting me to light his smoke for him. What do I do? Like, there's so many like, like micro scenes of great tension here that are chained together throughout the, the last fourth of this movie that are really great i was expecting that cigarette lighting scene to be where it broke because i thought that the german guy was going to realize that he had a weird cigarette yeah that american cigarettes bullshit maybe they had a cut scene where they're issued german cigarettes for for blending in purposes that intensity of him placing his hand on sutherland's hand and getting that close face to face yeah that was that was a lot there were a couple of moments, in particular, the arrival of the staff car at the gate where uh, Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin took the place of two German officers. Mm-hmm. Like the timely arrival of that car would have represented incredible intelligence in advance of this mission that we never see any sign of. And it is it's a moment of very, very convenient plot hole and you do kind of sit there and go like oh yeah okay maybe there's you know like at that point i guess i would accept donald sutherland's german cigarette if it were a camel maybe the guy would be like what the but it probably was a gal was (laughs) donald sutherland too like up to that point in the film has no chill and so (laughs) you you're fully expecting him to fall apart in that moment and that really helped jack up the tension too yeah this movie, I feel like, has a lot of the DNA that Inglorious Bastards, the Quentin Tarantino film, used. Like the the idea of being, you know, behind enemy lines and the idea of like a revisionist revenge on the Germans. Like we are going to kill them in such a brutal way. It's going to make ourselves feel better here in this post-war era. The death that the Germans are subjected to is like the scariest thing. It's an amazing trick that this movie pulls that it seems like a reasonable course of action when, you know, you're showing them all the Germans down in the bomb shelter, like frantically trying to get their fingers on the grenades that are being dropped down the hole into the into the grates. And like you, you put yourself in the Germans shoes and it's like the most terrifying idea. Did the release of this film predate the true horror of what the Holocaust was in terms of its scale and the encampments and the method of genocide because to a modern viewer I'm seeing how this goes down and I'm thinking well that's that's justified and proportional but in 1967 I would wonder if the viewer is as understanding as as we would be right now as to why that would be the case. I think that the story of the Holocaust was known, but not really widely absorbed by people. And partly it is because the Americans that actually had firsthand experience of it were so traumatized by it that they didn't really talk very much. Right. And, you know, Israel was certainly seeking um, justice, but in their own way. They were a little bit busy in 1967. Well, they were absolutely <laughs> fighting, getting, well, handing uh, the ass to a, a few Middle Eastern countries. But um, the characters in this movie were World War II vets. And 
I don't think they had any compunction about both portraying the Germans as like, uh, like you know, I think they're portrayed as like fancy pants, largely honorable, but fancy pants, shit for brains, prigs. <laughs> but a lot of these guys lived through the Battle of the Bulge and they don't have any sympathy for, I mean, the Germans are the enemy. When I was a little kid, we played, we didn't play Vietnam when we were out in the forest playing guns because it was too complicated. <laughs> we, didn't, <laughs> we didn't understand. Who the, I mean, it was still on the TV. No one out there wanted to become war. <laughs> I was, a, you know, when I was a kid, when I first was playing guns with my friends in the, in the neighborhood, Vietnam War was still on. And we, as kids, without even thinking about it, we never touched it with a 10-foot pole. Hmm. We played World War II, and the bad guys were the Germans. The bad guys were never the Japanese, either. You, hmm. We fought the Germans, you know, because they just seemed like <laughs> the, the villains of, of uh, if you, could, you couldn't cast a better villain, right? The cultural differences between the Americans and the Germans are so on display in this movie. Like when the three commandos are upstairs in their, in their olive drab fatigues and then downstairs the Germans are like in their dress uniforms and there's women in ball gowns and stuff. It like, it really brought into relief like the idea that Germany was a society that had like, had like nobility and stuff in it yeah. and 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 what an alien idea that was like the just like the way that suffuses like i mean this is a french chateau but they have taken over it and put german imagery all over it and what aliens the americans look like in that context yeah right and i think that was i think that played a role in the way that world war ii was propagandized to the soldiers in it in in its own time I mean, how many war movies have we seen where there's an Italian guy, a Jewish guy, a, you know, <laughs> sure. and these ones in the 60s that include like a black guy and a guy with a mustache, a guy with a mustache and a guy, you know, a, a, a beef. And don't forget guy. Charles Bronson, <laughs> a guy that can't read. I mean, you know, there's that scene where the Polish where, will be represented. <laughs> oh, that's right. Adam, you got a Polish guy in this movie. Somebody to root for. <laughs> But you know a lot of the a lot of these guys can't read. That was that was a kind of surprising moment in the film when it was suggested that one of the benefits of being in this squad would be that you would learn to read. Yeah. Uh, and then you contrast that against these guys that are listening to to Bach. I think that was something that that American GIs had in mind even even during the war. Yeah, I heard about that Bronson character that uh he was a pilot before the events of this film. And flew 48 successful kamikaze missions. How dare you? <laughs> I love looking at my watch to see when it would hit. There it is. 15 seconds. 15 <laughs> seconds. The clock ticked while I was like, is it dur? Is that a, is that a, a greatest gen reference? Is that some, what are they talking about? Oh, wow. We cut, our, <laughs> we cut to a hamster inside John's brains, like sparking two wires together, getting it to start. You know how long it's been since I heard a Pollock joke? I mean, it's been 25 years. I feel like it's been like four episodes. <laughs> wow. I tried to pepper them in now and then <laughs> thanks for that that's fun 
<laughs> How dare you? <laughs> so beautiful. <laughs> So the raid is successful, but at the cost of of most of the dirty dozen, most of them okay. are killed in the process. And well, of of every one of the dirty dozen, except for one, Bronson's the only one to survive. Here's the thing: I sort of consider Bowron one of the dozen, even though he's one of the guards for them. He's he's with them all the way through. He's he's in the prison, he's in the camp that they build for themselves, and he's on the mission later on. He has such an interesting arc of like yeah. starting as a guy that hates them and really like getting caught up in the esprit de corps of of the group. I really felt for him quite a bit. He's so gratified by the major's toughness and so like I mean talk about a man crush like every time the major <laughs> gives an order he's like yes sir. At first he was just like let's kick their asses. Thank God you're here. Right and uh, and yeah, by the end he's just he's he's fighting alongside them and with them and mourns their deaths and. There's some great intercutting between what's happening on the compound with Reisman and Vladislaw, and what's happening outside with the rest of the crew. Reisman and Vladislaw are just going floor to floor in this place, and they finally lock the occupants of the chateau into the basement area, and and they lock them behind a couple of different gate structures inside and this is going to be important later because on the top side it's it's jim brown's jefferson character who is unscrewing the vents that go to the basement and he's dropping grenades into the vents and pouring gasoline into them like it's not the sort of scene at the end of a film where there's an immediate explosion and the gratification of a successful mission like you really live in the slow drawn out vents being taken off gas being poured on people i think that was another thing that was fairly shocking about this film was that was how drawn out the deaths of these people were going to be and how awful it was going to be when it was finally visited upon them. Yeah. And how, yeah, how it could go wrong at any minute and, right. And the mission would fail. How almost implausible it was that this was going to work. Even how improvised it seemed. How surprised were you that Jim Brown's character died? I was really surprised by this by the end. Well, like I say, you know, he was the one kind of leading the mission of uh, the war games mm -hmm. and then pretty much what led the mission at the ch chateau. He was the first one over the ridge. Yeah. And he is an example of another outsider, but but maybe the one that had the furthest to travel to overcome the just baked in racism of the other 11 guys. But, you know, little by little, he became kind of the central character. And I don't think it's too far to say he was the moral center. And to watch him get shot just again, like so happenstance, like, come on, filmmakers. He was 10 feet from the car. <laughs> when those stacks go up and the chateau comes down, that is a big time explosion in any Hollywood era. That thing blows big. Did they blow up a real building? Because it didn't look like a miniature. They built the entire thing on a wow. set. Wow. And it was built so well that they couldn't blow it up, John. <laughs> I know. Isn't that awesome? It is a miniature. The, the final explosion is a miniature, but 
and it's only because they, 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 yeah, as Adam says, they would have needed 70 tons of explosives to blow up the actual thing. Are you nuts, dude? You need stuff to explode. Go boom. So it's, uh, it's Reisman and Vladislaw and, uh, and Bowron on, on their tank tread APC driving over the bridge and getting away, right? Left completely unsaid in the end of the film is that the following morning was D-Day. Yeah. They had to somehow make it all the way to the coast to rendezvous with the invasion, escape all the Germans between here and there, and not get killed by their own troops coming the other way, to make it back to We England promise! We're American! To, to the hospital. I mean, Dirty Dozen 2 should have been like the dirty two and a half, how they got back. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's a story left for another time. Is Dirty Dozen 2 just Chuck Bronson avenging the death of his wife and kid (laughs) (laughs) in some bad city? Through seven subsequent films. I hated Charles Bronson so much in the 80s. Oh, how dare you? (laughs) Because he was just playing this Dirty Harry over and over in these bad B movies, and it represented a kind of character of like the vengeful cop that didn't follow the rules who squinty-eyed unemotive yeah like late 70s mid 80s american uh man is there a more unlikely star than him for his time (laughs) well i know but but you know it was that he's the pent-up rage of every frustrated dude who finally gets to kill all his enemies and violate the rules but in the end he's a hero i mean that whole version of like american dudes in movies through that period offended my young progressive soul even then you know and it's not like i don't have a lot of frustration i just don't want to like march through a city just putting a bullet in everybody's brain he was above chuck norris for sure but below (laughs) clint eastwood in the pantheon of vengeance cops (laughs) but in these early bronson movies where he's playing you know where he's in a western or he's in a war movie i mean he's so gratifying to watch on such a like roughly beautiful man and you believe his flintiness don't you guys go besmirching my good name (laughs) (laughs) adam just loves all the garbage have you noticed that ben I have He'll noticed go, that, yeah. He will go to the mat for all the garbage. His taste is cheesy poofs and Mountain <laughs> Dew. And Were you guys surprised that he was the survivor of the film? I mean, if you were to take his relative star power off of the table, I thought for sure it would be Franco. Franco seems like the guy... Like, John made this comment earlier. Like, this seemed like it was a redemption story about Franco. He's the guy who's the biggest shit kicker in the beginning. He seems totally redeemable uh, up front. It seems like it's his movie to survive at the end. And when he died in the mission, I was shocked. He caught a bullet in the back. I mean, just like, really, you guys? Give us something. He didn't even give us a proper death face. You just see the top of his head. Yeah. I think that was the thing that stuck with me the most, was that he didn't get a death scene. You know, when he's like, we made it. I said, no, don't ever say that in a war movie. (laughs) And then he takes that bullet and and I'm like, oh, at least, at least give us like some kind of agony. 
Do you think he sucked at doing a death scene? Because they had to have shot it showing his face at least a couple times. If I'm John Cassavetes, I'm pissed. I'm pissed I go out like that, not showing my face. So often in a war movie, as the penultimate scene arrives, and you watch as everybody escapes, and you feel like, God, that's not it. You know, like not everybody gets out. Give us a little bit of a feeling that guys that you love sometimes die. And this movie just went the whole distance. Like, oh, do you like to... Do you, do you want it to seem real? Would you like the the guy that you love to die? How yeah. about all of them? One after another, and none of them really get to grab their chest and spin around three times and, you know, raise their hand up to, to heaven as they die. It's just like, pop. Is another way this film kind of bucks the formula. You're going to tell us now. Well, in every war film, I devise a scale of one to five things. It's based on... Mostly an item that I find to be unique or interesting in the film. Uh, In The Dirty Dozen, the Donald Duck figurine (laughs) really stuck out, not only for its usage in the film, they use it as a sort of a a place where they rally at the end of the mission. They, They put it on the little model map, and then they bring it with them on the mission itself. And it's so bright and white and yellow and blue, it really sticks out from everything else in the film. And so... Uh, the rating scale for The Dirty Dozen will be one to five Donald Duck figurines. <laughs> ben, I'll start with you. How do you rate the film The Dirty Dozen? I'm going to give The Dirty Dozen three Donald Duck figurines. I really liked it, but I feel like there's a lot of fat on the bone. And I feel like the pace, especially at the beginning, was uh was tough to it was tough to get engaged with this one by the end i'm i'm so there for it but uh mm-hmm. i just wished you know like i think it if they'd cut the half hour that it went over the 2 hour mark out of the film that could have told a very similar story in a substantially less amount of time and i don't think it would have suffered much for it do you think this film needs the war game that feels like the fat to me. Like you could prove they're worth some other way and skip to the to the actual mission. Yeah, you could cut the war game or just not show the entire war game in in all of its little moments. Like I think that we care about all of the little moments in the raid, but in the war game it might be just like, How did you guys get that truck? What? And then, you know, smash cut to airplane over Germany. Right. How about you, John? Uh, You know, this was right at the beginning of an era, the 70s era of films, where movies were two and a half hours long and nothing happened. (laughs) One day we're going to watch Deer Hunter on this program. Oh, no. And you guys are going to sit through a 40-minute long wedding (laughs) in in like a a Pennsylvania bar. And you're going to be so sorry you complained about the Dirty Dozen's caper. (laughs) <laughs> I'm in my um, late 30s. My my window for attending weddings is over. <laughs> well, you're gonna you're gonna sit through the wedding of Deer Hunter one day when it pops up in our randomized list. But it, we were right on the cusp of the era of the auteur, where films just became unhinged from plot and just lumbered all over the place uh, at the filmmaker's whim. 
So this, you know, you identified already that this was four set pieces. You could take 10 minutes out of each of the four sets because the final raid has all that tension building where you're just like, come on, you guys. Like you're <laughs> tiptoeing around this thing and, you know, it's like, are they going to see the rope? Well, geez, yeah. let's spend 11 minutes there. <laughs> um, let's check in again with whether we're on time or not. <laughs> <laughs> what you see in so many films is the the foreshortening of the period where the guys bond with each other so that when all of a sudden they're a crack troop you're like huh i I didn't actually see that happen and i kind of don't see how it would happen and when the major says like these guys are ready i'd put them up against anybody you're not i mean i certainly wasn't a hundred percent on board with that i was like really i haven't seen these guys do anything that would indicate that they were capable of a of a mission and then they pull it off and you realize like, oh, sure, they're using deception and all of the all of the regular army are like, wait a minute, you can't change your sleeve. <laughs> but in fact, that's going to be instrumental in pulling off the mission. Right. So I think you could take 10 minutes out of every one of the things and make a more conventional film. But what you would lose is the slow, incremental believability of the of the way the cast coheres and the mission coheres. I think that's a fair point. I stand yeah. by my rating, though, John. And oh, what I'm... we're here for is a rating. Oh, I see. <laughs> How many Donald Ducks? Boy. <laughs> boy, oh, boy. This is something that you guys can speak to uh, better than I can. But this is an era where, I mean, there are so many beautiful shots in this movie, and I was surprised yeah. I didn't hear from you about so many of the, like, Things are framed beautifully. They're, I mean, beautiful, beautiful filmmaking. Great, great bicep framing. Lots of biceps. But but one thing that stood out to me as a, as a lay viewer is that this is the era of lighting, film lighting. And the lighting looks artificial to me. There's always a glow on somebody's helmet or, you know, things are just kind of glowing in a technicolor way that we're used to war movies these days being filmed in a kind of gray light. Yeah, there is a ton of rim light in this film. Yeah, whatever that is. <laughs> There's a shot that really stood out to me where Charles Bronson is like called into a into one of the huts to like answer some questions and he's standing there answering them and out the door in the background the the uh, the yard is exposed at the same level as his face, which means <laughs> the lighting in the hut was really, really hot, you know, to match sunlight. And uh, that is definitely something that is not not really something cinematographers are doing these days. They're comfortable with the outside being brighter than the inside. John, when you're lighting a person, there's typically three lights. There's the key light, which is the, the strongest light, the brightest light. There's the fill light, which which comes at it from sort of a the opposite direction if you're shooting a face you're sort of filling up the other side of the face and then there's the rim light which is behind the actor uh shooting directly at the butthole <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and and that creates a halo is that what that does? that's that's the halo that you see in dark scenes when you see like a tiny rim of white light around someone's head or their hair you see yeah. this a lot in interviews. That's the rim light at work. Or or the like the back light. of a cheek. You'll see you'll see people lit that way too and this film has that in it as well. Like yeah. there's some cheek light there. That's 
That's the rim. There is three-point lighting in every single shot. I yeah. feel like I would love when I enter a room. I already have theme music that plays when I enter a room, but I would like some rim light as well. Uh, there, there are a few things about this movie that really set it in its time, and one is the sort of cartoony music that plays sometimes, the like yeah. the piccolo or the or the um, you know the, the oboe that's just like, and you're like, what are you doing? Stop that! There's nothing funny about this moment. But it's it's you know it's supposed to kind of brighten it up and um, and emphasize the caper nature, and then that lighting that lighting just it just uh, it takes me out, and it's it's what I admire I guess about the way film has evolved. So that is going to take one half of a duck away, <laughs> and I'm going to give it four and a half ducks. Wow, Whoa. big score! Because I am old and this is what when I, when we talked about doing a war movie podcast like this is the kind of yeah somewhat corny war movie where actually if you let your mind engage with the things that they're saying and the things that they're doing it's just as hard emotionally as saving private ryan or harder it just doesn't like spoon feed it to you because the characters in the film they, they don't show their fear and they don't show their trauma but you know it's there they don't deny it either and I, so i feel like it's much more true to the 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 masculinity that these guys would have been carrying rather than a sort of retroactive or revisionist masculinity so i just i mean i i romped through it kind of a masculinity verite isn't it uh, and and it would have almost immediately after this gone away because after this we were seeing a like mash was the thing that followed this and mash was so ironic altman was like two and a half hours fuck you <laughs> <laughs> we're going for three <laughs> we're going three hours buddy <laughs> and it's i mean and and three i mean mash is three hours and completely plotless yeah uh, so that's what was on the horizon, and this was one of the last um, movies kind of made in this, bo- both with a 60s sort of hipness. Yeah, baby. <laughs> I mean, you think about this, this is made during the height of Vietnam. Anyway, so, I mean, I'll stand by my four and a half ducks. I never give up. I never give four and a half ducks, but. I know. I'm shocked. Yeah, I just can't. I can't ding this movie for much because all the things that are awful about it are also I mean they resonate if you think about them in the in their context and war movies should portray brutality and this one doesn't let you off the hook no it definitely doesn't um I really love the movie and I think anything with a four thing rating and above for me would mean it is of a rewatchability i would return to it in a in a pork chop film kind of way in mm, the yeah. benjamin r harrison parlance <laughs> uh, this film is too long to rewatch in that way and so i've got to ding it a little bit for that but the combined masculinity of a lee marvin and a charles bronson <laughs> and even a great great lover in george kennedy uh, means that I'm going to give it uh, four ducks with a bullet. Four ducks for me for the Dirty Dozen. Wow, look at that. Four ducks, but right right on the hair. Right on the it's line. Not, it's not 4.1 ducks. It's, <laughs> it's 
four pounds. While you were talking on and on about your rating, John, I looked up all the films that, that starred both Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson. There's only four, and... Uh, the reviews have not been kind to any other <laughs> film besides Dirty Dozen. So, what are the what are the other three? Uh, a couple of them might qualify for our podcast. You're in the Navy now is one of them. Yep, sounds good. The meanest men in the West is another, so, and then uh, ni- 1981's Death Hunt. Uh, which, which, which prescribes to the law in the 80s that every Charles Bronson movie must have death in its name. Yeah. Every yeah. film, we, we have to decide who's the guy that we feel the most for. Who's the guy that speaks to us? Who's your guy, Adam? It would be impossible for me to choose anyone else but the only Polish in the film. <laughs> He's Joseph Vladislaw. He gets jumped in that bathroom. He's was he jumped because he was Polish? I don't know. I'm I'm gonna say he was. <laughs> He's thrown a beating fairly early on. He's the only one of the dozen to survive the film. Even though like his survival is sort of medium heroic, right? He's riding shotgun in the APC with Lee Marvin, not really shooting a bunch. He's just sort of ducking down in the wheel well. <laughs> not a great ending for him, but sort of uh, probably what I'd be doing riding over that bridge (laughs) and in that way uh, Vladislav's got to be my guy he is my guy as well Adam and uh, it is because of the scene where he's trying to get the grappling hook up on the roof and he's got (laughs) kind of performance anxiety because everybody is watching him (laughs) (laughs) they're just like come on man like like there's five guys standing around waiting for you to get this grappling hook up there and if you don't the the mission is screwed we need to get that we need to get that antenna down you guys think you could do it better (laughs) i'd like to see you try that's four Charles Bronson impressions from me in this podcast to medium reception. Don't think we don't appreciate it, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I wouldn't try to culturally appropriate Polish culture by making an impression of him. No, that would be bad. That's One of my bad. best friends is Polish. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the Polish are have already been insulted by God, who decided. <laughs> Not to have Jesus be born there because they couldn't find three wise men and a virgin. You son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. Who's your guy, John? My guy is Lee Marvin's hat. (laughs) (laughs) Lee Marvin's hat does so much work in this movie. It's impossible to, to convey like how expressive he is with that hat how much it establishes his character, how much better it is than any other hat in any other war movie. (laughs) And a lot of times you get war movies where the guy, where, you know, different dudes are basically their character is that they're wearing a hat, (laughs) right? I mean, Radar O'Reilly did 10 seasons of MASH and he was just like, he had that hat, that tanker's hat. And we see several different iterations of the hat. At one point, it's got some, it's got some officer's braid on it. There are a couple that are, you know, sort of rough wool campaign hats. There are a couple that are, that are slicker um, dress versions of it. But he's always got it on, and he wears it with such 
panache. That style of like hat tipped so far forward on your face that, you know, he tips it so he tips it all the way over his eyebrows until it's on the bridge of his nose (laughs) sometimes. And it's not like that hat provides any shade from the light. Uh, It's just it's just there as a like ultimate kind of fuck you. And every time the hat does a new thing, I just cackled with glee <laughs> the, when he comes on the scene the first thing i do is look at his hat and identify like how it's different from the last hat and how he's got it you know how he's got it kind of like dimpled i just i'm so in love with that hat and i do i wear my hats like that i don't wear that kind of hat but whenever i put a hat on I think to myself, is this hat far enough forward? <laughs> and then I just I just push up the back of it a little bit so that it just kind of sits a little bit more precariously on my head. Don't push it too far forward, John. No one will see your death face. <laughs> yeah, but the, the problem is, Adam, as I've descri- described many times, I don't have eyebrows. So, like, because my eyebrows are so freaking blonde, it offers the suggestion that I have an expressive face. <laughs> Because if I raise, you know, if I raise my brow and my hat goes up, it's like, oh, now I understand what emotion he's he's projecting. John looks like he's interested. <laughs> his, I've, ne- his I've never known him to face. look at me that way. <laughs> but look at what his hat, look how his hat is looking at you. Yeah. Uh, well, should we... Uh, take a moment to pick our next war film that we'll watch here on friendly fire let's take two moments even yeah are we up to a hundred are we do do we still have a hundred we have 96 films on our list at this point Um, with more coming in by the day yeah Yeah. we're getting a lot of suggestions from our uh, fan club there's an entire uh friendly fire subreddit i think it's a r slash friendly fire podcast which was uh kindly started for us by uh reddit user Schulzbuster. Schulzbuster. yeah um they've been compiling a list over there i'm sure uh i'm sure by the time this comes out this is old news but uh yeah they've got uh they've got sections like infantry paratrooper sailors commando joint operation etc 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 they have right. no idea at this point that our master list is organized by a total lack of organization. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, give us a randomly selected number between 1 and 96, John, if you would. I, I just want to point out in interacting with your fan community, your Uxbridge Shimoda fan community, <laughs> I find them delightful. Yeah, they're great, great folks. Hilarious. Yeah. But, but there, was a, there was a person that tweeted me not long ago really supporting the Colonel Troutman character in and Ma- Rambo, <laughs> like you know, really taking a stand on Adam's behalf mm. that he's a great character, but his Twitter handle was something like Joe B Troutman. <laughs> you found my alternate Twitter handle, John. <laughs> I, I I called him out on it. I was like, you don't seem like a neutral observer, and very sheepishly he responded like, yeah, I suppose you're right. I was like, What's going on here? God, you better bring a good supply of black buttons. <laughs> uh, let's say, let's go early this time. Let's say two. Number two. Number two is a 
1979 Vietnam film. Uh oh. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Oh. It is Apocalypse Now. Ever wow. heard of this one, guys? Anybody? Wow. <laughs> We've arrived here already to Apocalypse Now. This show is only a couple of months old. I assure you hey. that the thumbs are not on the scales. Uh, mm-hmm. This was honestly, honestly rot. Um, they could make uh, whole films about this film, Ben. <laughs> did I think? <laughs> they could write, I mean, you could write a master's thesis on Apocalypse Now. Not that anybody ever has. Yeah, that's a good idea, though. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> somebody, should, somebody should steal that idea. I mean, give us credit, but... Basically, all I read about when I was in film studies classes in college was <laughs> was Apocalypse Now. Uh-huh. Apocalypse uh-huh. Now 101, 201, and 301. Wait, did you go to Apocalypse Now University? I did. I <laughs> that really might did. explain it. Majored in Apocalypse Now, and I minored in LSD. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, that'll be the next film. And uh, Who put this film on the list? I believe you put this film on the list, John. This is your fault. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, not because uh, I mean I, I think Adam or I would have put it on eventually if you hadn't yeah but you guys were too busy going to film school to be putting a bunch of classic movies on this list yeah Adam was trying to decide whether Porky's 2 was a war movie <laughs> I was too busy putting the Lord of the Rings the two towers on the list to, uh, oh, to remember wow. to put this on is that on the list that's totally on the list awesome. it's the only Lord of the Rings on the list by the way awesome well, I was the, shocked that Top flick. Gun was not and that's a that's an issue that I'm remedying right now <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I feel like we might have already done Top Gun Adam I'm not sure uh, such a liar that movie started a little war in my house when we watched the volleyball scene <laughs> my wife uh, really went ape for that you were dropping some ordinates on your crotch for that one? <laughs> yeah, I expended all remaining on Expend my Expend all remaining lubricant on your position. <laughs> How did I get on this podcast? Anyways, uh, that's the uh, end of the show for this week. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire's a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Egg Ain't Music, and our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. You want to continue the conversation on social media? You better use that hashtag, Friendly Fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. You can also join in the discussion over at our subreddit or our Facebook group. You can also just give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. But if you want to go over the top, head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate and support the production of Friendly Fire. Hey, and as a final thought, at MaxFunCon, so many people came up to say how much they loved Friendly Fire. We really, really appreciate it. So we'll see you again next year. But also, we'll see you next week for another episode. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.